pop quiz, what is worship? Go, what is it? Surrender, praises. What? Adoration. I thought you said batteries. So, wow, that's metaphorical, John. Sacrifice. Something about worth. Giving worth, ascribing worth to God. Sure. A while back, this guy, this guy came into my office, uh, a fellow who was uh, new to the church, and I, I really enjoyed him. Super smart guy. And uh, we enjoyed talking about the things of the kingdom, and, and uh, he's a good truth seeker, I would say. And he came in one day and he said, I just can't stand it anymore. Just can't stand it anymore. What can't you stand? I can't stand all that stuff in Sunday service. I can't stand, uh, you know, when the music is playing and they're like all singing and their eyes are closed and their hands are raised. And it's just so stupid. Just so stupid. And I thought, you've been standing next to me and listening to me sing. No, it's not that. It's just, it's a waste of time. It just seems so pointless to me, he said. Uh, people get together, Christians, I, I always see them getting together and somebody plays music and they all trip out and, uh, you know, and singing to the Lord and it, it just seems so worthless. Uh, shouldn't we be doing something more worthwhile? You know, instead of wasting hours singing to God, uh, shouldn't we go, you know, serve the poor or um, you know, help our neighbors or, or something like that. Wouldn't that be more worthwhile? At first I suggested to him that maybe his problem was languages of worship. Like maybe he didn't, you know, there are some people that just, they're not musical. You know, they're just tone deaf. They can't really do it. Are you objecting to the singing, you know? Because there are other languages of worship, you know. You can sort of ascribe adoration and worth to the Lord with your posture, you know. Uh, my kneeling or, or bowing, which is what the old Hebrew word for, for worship meant, just, you know, to bow down. You can do it with other creative gifts. You can do it with sacrifice, material sacrifice. You can do it with a declaration of thanksgiving or testimony. I mean, think of all the different languages of adoration, praise, and worship to the Lord in, in the Bible. And he said, no, no, it, it, it all seems stupid to me. Uh, the, the issue with him, I think, was what I would call the passionate gesture or just, you know, this, the passionate gesture to God that just, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Just sort of adoring God or praising God or recognizing God in a, in a heartfelt and, and passionate sort of way. He couldn't understand why that was important or effective uh, to the least. Um, he emphasized at the end, why not just go serve the poor and do something worthwhile together. Is that not true worship? I said to him at one point, have you ever known a church to serve the poor more than Blue Water does? Have you ever attended one that does? I said, no. Uh, yet, you can't stand the worship that we do together. True. Anybody resonate with that story? I mean, what, what good is worship? I mean, what, what, what's the point? We talk sometimes at, at Blue Water Mission about this thing that we call the Blue Water Path, which is just the way that we sort of summarize and describe uh, discipleship with the Lord, the way that we grow 
in following Jesus and become who we are supposed to be in the world, which is people of purpose, people of, of ministry. Uh, for those of you who don't know it, uh, first in, in life, you're generally a seeker. You're seeking after God or you're seeking after truth. And once a seeker, always a seeker. You should always maintain that desire to learn more about God and about his truth. Uh, after a while, you encounter God, you become a follower. Uh, that's the point at which you call Jesus your master, your Lord. And now you're not just going to seek, you're going to seek after him. Uh, you're going to do what he says. You're going to follow what he says and what he does. That's a huge transition in life. You become a follower of Jesus. Huge. Maybe no bigger transition uh, in, in the world. And then as you follow Jesus, you find yourself becoming a servant. You serve his people. You serve people in his name. Uh, you serve uh, uh, the lowly. You know, that's where you learn love. That's where you grow in selflessness. That's a very important stage. And then if all goes well, you become a worshiper. That's the point in which you start bowing down to God. You surrender to God. We'll talk more about that this morning. And then if that all goes well, you become a minister. And by that I mean you really move into the ministry of your life calling. You really become who you are in terms of your purpose from God. Uh, they don't necessarily happen in that order. And again, you know, you don't graduate, you just add. You know, once a seeker, always a seeker. Once a follower, always a follower. Um, here's what I notice happens a lot. People uh, seek after God, they start following Jesus, they start serving. They want to skip right to their life calling stage. They want to skip right to full-blown ministry, being all... Uh, you are in God, they skip over worship. Worship is the thing that trips people up more than any other thing in discipleship. It's hard uh, to become a, a, a good worshiper. It's hard to become a good surrenderer, a good adorer, a good praiser. I mean, fundamentally, it's hard to become that. If you're a good singer, you might really enjoy worship music, but that's not what I'm talking about, right? Until you become a worshiper, you get stuck. And if you get really stuck there, uh, it might well destroy you, your faith, and your discipleship. I would define worship simply as, well, so many different ways to define it. Uh, one way I like is making space for God to be God. Making space uh, for God uh, to be God. Or treating God like a God, which involves treating you like you're not God. Um, you know, making space for him to be who he is, which is rather unique. There's no one quite like God. And so worship, we ascribe to him, recognizing his unique position, his unique power, his unique character. Uh, in having a little debate once in John chapter 4, uh, Jesus began talking about worship. He was talking to a Samaritan woman that he encountered by a well on a journey that he was taking. It was just Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And they were having a little discussion. It turned into a little debate. Many of you know the story. Fascinating story. Of Jesus just honoring this woman. Uh, they begin debating the proper forms of worship at one point. Because the Samaritans had rejected the temple in Jerusalem. They worshipped on a mountain in Samaria. Whereas the Jews... Uh, they worshipped on a mountain in Jerusalem, and, and they fought about that. What is the holy place? What is the right way to worship God? And Jesus says to her, uh, a time is coming and, and is at hand in which the Lord will look for those who worship in spirit and in truth. 
in spirit and in truth, which has always struck me uh, as, as a loaded phrase. What does it mean to worship in spirit? Well, I don't know. You do a long meditation on that. But in some fashion, it has to do with recognizing and embracing the transcendence of God, that he is not limited by physical boundaries in any way. And that was sort of Jesus' response to, do you worship on the Samaritan mountain or in the Jerusalem mountain? Look, you worship in spirit, right? God is not on one mountain or another. Uh, you, have to, you have to recognize that he has transcended, that he is everywhere, that he is not like our physical selves. And then in truth, recognizing the reality about God and the reality about you. That's really the heart of worship. You're God, I'm not. You are transcendent, you're different than I am. I'm just gonna let you be you and I'm gonna come to you as the honest me. Worship, I think, so many languages that you could use to signal that. Music is an awesome group language because it's unifying. You know, we all get the beat and we all sing the same lyrics, more or less. We all sing the same notes, more or lesser. Um, uh, creative arts, posture, like I say, declarations, thanksgiving, celebration, anything is worship as long as it's a little bit impractical. Any language can be a language of worship as long as just a little bit impractical, a little bit wasteful. I would say that's the qualification. Perhaps powerfully wasteful. And that gets us to our story for the day. Uh, it's on the back of your programs from Matthew chapter 26. It'll be up on the big board too. Uh, and this is a story from uh, toward the end of Jesus's life. He is on his way to Jerusalem where he will be killed actually. He knows that. He has warned people that that's what's coming, but few of them recognize it. He's in a town called Bethany, which is where some of his best friends live, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. He is in the home of a guy named Simon the leper, and this is the story. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. In another version of this story, it's told in three different Gospels, we find that the alabaster jar contains nard. Everybody say nard. Just because it's really fun to say nard. Um, uh, which is a super expensive, super rare perfume. So she has a whole jar of this stuff. Uh, so she has an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Nard dump. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Another version of the story said, this perfume could have been sold for a year's worth of wages. In, in money of the time, it was about a $50,000 gesture. So the disciples like, wow, this could have been sold for a lot of money, and that money given to the poor. What the heck? Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Dang, he really honors her. 
Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. I just think that is such a rich story, and it is by far my favorite story of worship in the entire Bible, because obviously what this woman does for Jesus is worship. It's worshipful. It is certainly wasteful in the extreme. So the scene is, uh, Jesus is in the home of, of Simon the leper. They're having a dinner party together. I submit to you, it was a really cool dinner party because if you're having dinner with a guy named Simon the leper, he's probably Simon the ex-leper, right? Because they considered leprosy to be very contagious and you wouldn't hang out with the leper. You should, certainly wouldn't eat food with him. So, uh, you know, the, the implication is Jesus just healed this guy. And so he threw, cruises through Bethany, uh, where he's been before. He said, oh, Jesus, you know, the guy who saved my life. Why don't you come hang at my place? We'll have some burritos. It'll be awesome. Um, and so he's hanging out there. Probably some of his other friends uh, from Bethany uh, were there. And then this woman crashes the party. In other versions of the story, she's uh, denoted as a woman of ill repute. So this is some woman that has had some powerful, life-changing grace-filled experience with Jesus, no doubt. She knows who she is, who he is. Uh, and she comes in and, and makes this incredible gesture, a gesture of love and adoration. You know, anything that you would call worship, this is what she's doing uh, to the Lord here. She is worshiping Jesus, and she worships him. Talk about with anything you have. She worships him with what was clearly her most prized possession, an alabaster, the alabaster itself would have been expensive and, and precious, an alabaster jar filled with very expensive perfume. We find out that it's nard, so it's worth a year's wages, this incredible thing. Uh, why does she have this thing, you may ask? Um, it was, in all likelihood, her dowry. Uh, and this is how it would work in that culture. If you wanted uh, your daughter to be uh, a really hot item on the market and to marry into a good family and, you know, get good alliances and stuff like that, you would endow her, you would give her a dowry. This woman had possession of it, which meant her, her parents were probably dead at this point. This was her inheritance in the world because women didn't own land or anything like that. When she got married, she would give this to her family, to her husband's family, uh, and that would become part of the legacy to her children. This was her dowry, without which she could not be married, probably, in that culture. So she is not just sacrificing uh, 50 grand worth of perfume. She is sacrificing her opportunity to be married, particularly in that she had been a woman of ill repute. She is giving away her future. If a woman did not get married in that culture, if a woman had no children, it did not go well for that woman in old age because it was your marriage and your children that provided for you if you were a woman. This is a huge sacrifice. This is enormous. The cash value itself was enormous, but the social value of what she was doing was incalculable. She was basically giving her whole life for a shampoo, just anointing him with some smell-gooder, uh, and, uh, you know, preparing him for burial, uh, as he understood it. Just an extravagant gesture. Mind-blowing. How much does she adore Jesus? 
can't quantify it. She gave him everything that she had in a way that really made no sense. How, how important was it for him to smell good when he went to the cross? Not very important. At the end of being beaten and being up all night and all the blood and gore all over you, I don't think it would have counted for very much at all. It was completely impractical. It was completely wasteful, abhorrently wasteful, given what the disciples could have done uh, with that money if she really wanted to be, you know, sensible about it. So, you know, just, just an enormous, enormous waste. Um, a huge sacrifice with disturbingly small outcome. Um, and so the people there get offended, and not just the people, but Jesus' disciples get offended. These are the people that walked with him uh, the whole time. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they just go after the girl. Uh, why do you let her do this? What's up with that? She, uh, she is unfeeling toward the poor. Her priorities are not straight. They were saying about her. And Jesus interrupts them and, and says... Uh, you know, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing to me. He is just struck with the beauty of it. Beauty. What is beauty anyway? I mean, it, that's an interesting word. Think about that sometime. You know, is that practical? Is that impractical? I don't know. But he finds it beautiful. The poor you will always have with you, but you won't always have me. This is like anointing me for burial. And then he says this amazing thing. Wherever the gospel is preached in the world, this story about her will be told. He never says anything like that anywhere else in Scripture. Never honors anyone like he honors her in that moment. Incidentally, the prediction has come true. Uh, wherever the gospel is told, uh, people know about the alabaster jar many songs written about it. I'm telling it to you today. If you didn't know before, now you know now. She's become a huge fixture uh, in, in the gospel. Jesus predicts glory for this woman, which is just uh, striking. What, what is the point of her gesture? Do you suppose? What's the point? What makes it so stunningly worthwhile to Jesus? And different ways that we could talk about that. I mean, it shows a lot of love. It shows a lot of adoration. It shows a lot of thanksgiving. It uh, shows a certain amount of artistry, I think. The woman certainly has a flair for the dramatic. Um, but I think the point of the gesture, stick with me here, the point of the gesture is waste. The whole point of this thing is that it is wasteful. That is the point. How many of you guys have ever given roses to your beloved? Oh, you better raise your hands. Yeah. yeah. Uh, at least some nice flower, you know. Pekakile. What, what's the point of doing that? What's the point of giving roses or a really nice lay uh, to your beloved? I think... I think the whole point of doing something like that is that there is no point. I think that's precisely what makes it valuable. You know, if I go out and buy a dozen roses, long stem roses, they're, you know, they're expensive everywhere, really expensive in Hawaii, and I, and I give them to Sonia, as I often do, honey. You know, 
the, the whole point of giving the rose, it's really, it's really not their nice smell, although they smell fine. It's really not that they're beautiful, although, you know, I guess they're pretty to look at. The, the point is that they're going to die in a few days. And I've just spent a lot of money on something that has no value. Uh, so what, what am I saying to her? I'm saying, honey, my love for you goes beyond what's practical. That's the whole thing. Is that not the whole thing? That's the whole thing. You know, this, this is a token of how limitless my devotion to you is. You know, you transcend calculation. Just, just give me something here. Just, amen. Thank you, dear. She's like, really? Really? Yeah, that's what that meant, dear. Uh, the one time I did it. <clears throat> but that's sort of the definition of extravagance, right? Ex there is no extravagance without waste. Um, there is no worship without waste. Um, I think, you know, that's the point. It's like you're saying, you are so valuable to me that there is no such thing as wasting something on you. Everything I present to you is, is fine because you're just that valuable to me. My love for you goes beyond what's practical, and that's offensive. But that's the point. That's the point. Are you following me? Just like, give me an amen. amen. Throw roses at me. I've seen people do that at concerts. Nobody's once done that during my sermon. <laughs> Worship is when you stop calculating with God. Worship is when you just stop calculating. Uh, and, and occasionally we reach that point in other relationships. You know, a lot of times our romantic relationship, you think about it, that's the definition of romance too. Sort of just stop calculating. And it's like just abandon yourself uh, to the moment, uh, to, to the sentiment. We celebrate that moment uh, in some kind of relationships, and we should celebrate it often uh, with God. This is this has now gone beyond calculation. And if you do that, oh, it opens up a grand number of possibilities. Everything changes when you get to that point where you stop calculating with God. Worship is always a bit wasteful. It is not practical. Practical. So what good is it? Well, it has to do with what it opens up. Life is designed to be a partnership of purpose with God. Or I should say earthly life is designed to be a partnership of purpose with God. And for that partnership to work really well, we need to give God his place, and then we need to assume our place. We need to celebrate his loftiness and recognize our relative lowliness in spirit and in truth, recognizing that his loftiness is transcendent. It goes beyond normal boundaries and being truthful about, you know, where we are, what we bring and what we lack, what we don't have, recognizing his transcendence in our sort of grimmer reality. Um, and in that worship, costs don't matter because a lofty, spiritual, transcendent God has everything that we need, so... What are we going to give him that he can't give back, right? And recognizing the truth that we never have enough of what we need without him. Worship. Uh, worship is the only way to get all that we need in life, I think. Um, 
Because it, put th- it puts things in, in, in order so that God's transcendence, his power, his presence can flow unimpeded. Unimpeded by our pride. If you're down on your face before the Lord, it's hard to be prideful. Or other fleshly desires or our agendas or our, our priorities. It is a surrender of all of those things so that God can just be God. As I said at the beginning, worship is making space for God to be God. And if you let God be God, then he can do anything with you. Until you let God be God, he can't do all that much. He can certainly do some, but the breakthrough will be really letting him be all that he is. Follow me? I think that's what worship uh, brings you. Worship, you might say, is the organization of heaven, the way that heaven is organized. Or you might say the way that the kingdom of heaven on earth is organized. God, big, transcendent, unlimited, us just surrendering to whatever he's bringing. That's the proper organization in life. And for us to get organized like that, you actually need to practice it because it is a little counterintuitive. We do need to get ourselves out of the way. Um, You could describe it another way uh, if you want to. You You could say that worship is what makes God welcome so he can dwell here with us without disguise. Worship is what makes God welcome so that he can dwell with us without disguise. Jesus uh, was God in a bit of a disguise, right? God coming to earth in the form of man. And then this woman breaks into the party and she's like, I'm going to waste my whole life on you right now in this moment for no good reason other than I can. (sighs) She had ripped off his disguise. You, You aren't just a cool dude. You aren't just someone who who uh, changes my life. You are capital S someone. You're him. You're God. And everyone else still bought the disguise, but not her. Right? And when we worship, when we recognize God who he is, when people come in here and, and, and see people, you know, looking a little foolish for the sake of worship, what they're seeing is, is people who have beheld God without disguise. No, he looked like a poor beggar from Nazareth. I see the real him. Reveal. And I'm letting him be the real him. And now that I'm letting him be the real him, he can do whatever he wants in my life. This can start to get glorious. And when we're all worshiping God together, um, he can just be the real him. He can just come and, you know, just be him. He doesn't have to be small. He doesn't have to be cool. He doesn't have to be, you know, quote unquote, approachable. He can just be God. And when you let God be God, what happens? Well, lives of women of ill repute get changed. Lepers become ex-lepers, as he would prove in a few days. Death would lose its sting, you know. He would triumph over the grave. Anything happens when you really let God be God. And the key to that, worship. When you let God be God, then you can move on to ministry and and you can become uh, anything in in the world. This is sort of a meditation on worship and and what it brings us. Is Is it clear? I'll try to just like bullet point it a little bit. Benefits of letting God be God. Number one, you get a big God. Not a small, cool God. 
God will be, you know, as big, as transcendent, as all-powerful as you welcome him to be, as a rule, as a rule of thumb anyway. So worship is letting God be God. It's the practice of submission and rehearsal of his transcendence. It's a surrender to his plans and not ours. It's beyond our calculating, because our calculating cannot contain God. You get a big God. Uh, Number two, uh, it consecrates you. You get consecration and a freer you. Because if you're letting God be all he is, and you are surrendering to that, then it changes you, right? You empty yourself out of things that you would hold uh, in trade. It's hard to worship in truth and, and feel good about harboring sin in your life. You know, if you recognize who God is, you'll be willing to set aside anything that you have. You'll sacrifice even the things you don't have to sacrifice. Your future, you know, your dowry, your year's pay, whatever. You're beyond calculation now, so you're certainly not going to hold on to those little fleshly comforts anymore. You're gone. And if you're a good worshiper, that makes you a great repenter. And if you're a lousy repenter, it's probably in part because you're not a very good worshiper yet. I think worship creates passion in you, and in particular, courage in you. Um, you, uh, you have to practice romance and passion in your romance in order to become a romantic and, and passionate person. You know, uh, the capability often follows uh, the action. Uh, worship always has an impractical side to it, and so it, it causes you to expand yourself. Uh, whenever you do it. Uh, It involves a disregard for costs, which is one definition of courage, I think. When you worship, you disregard costs, whatever they may be, and that is a great practice for courage. If you're disregarding your future and worship to the Lord, then what is, what are people on the street going to do to you that intimidates you? You're beyond all of that. You've become a courageous person. Uh, one of my favorite uh, proverbs from the Celts uh, is uh, never give a sword to a man who can't dance. I think you've heard me quote that before in here. Do you, you guys know that, that little Celtic proverb? Never give a sword to a man who can't dance. Comes to us from the Celtic warriors, you know, the guys who painted themselves blue. Braveheart, freedom! All right. Uh, never give a sword to a man who can't dance. What? I don't know. I'm in battle. I don't want a guy next to me to be doing, you know, the little Irish jig thing. It's like, that, make, that does not make me feel secure. What is that exactly? Um, but there's a lot of sense to me in it uh, when, when I think about it. What is, what is dancing? You know, you can't, you can't dance unless you're a little self-forgetful. You can't dance unless you're a bit impractical. You know, we all, we all know those, you know, those, those practical guys, you know, let's give them a name, let's call them men, who, um, who are just like, you know, they're, they're, they're too cool to dance. You know, they'll, they'll go out there and play sport like complete idiots, but they won't dance because, ah, I'm not really into that. That's just, that makes no sense, something about your body like that. Um, they, they can't give themselves over to joy. They can't give themselves over to celebration. All of which is fine. I myself, I'm not a great dancer. Um, thank you, Grandma. I, I waltz with Grandma very well. Um, 
when you are in battle next to someone and you're gonna go throw yourself at a line of Romans, um, you want your partner to be impractical. You want him capable of losing himself in the moment. You want, you want him to not take himself so seriously because unless he's willing to abandon himself to the deed at hand, um, he's gonna cower, you know? He's, he's gonna let you down. Um, you want someone who's willing to abandon himself without carefully calculating. Now, if I run at these guys, I'll probably get killed. Let me do the utility equation here. You know, is that really worth it? No, no. The only chance you have is utter recklessness and, recklessness and abandon, right? And there are times in life when I feel the same way. Yeah, you know, suddenly this doesn't make any sense. Uh, I'm in a very vulnerable spot right here. I'm facing this huge battle. Um, that's the moment in which you want to have rehearsed in your life the ability of abandoning yourself to the moment. You know, stopping calculating, of disregarding costs, of not worrying about what you look like and just go. And, you know, you can see that in dancing. You can see it in someone who's willing to, you know, let himself go a bit at the campfire to celebrate uproariously. That guy's worth giving a sword to. Follow me? And express that very well. But uh, never give a sword to a guy who can't dance. And I think, you know, in some respect, God might follow that advice. Unless you can dance or sing, or bow down, or whatever your worship language can be. Unless you can worship, he's not going to give you your, uh, your warrior's badge. He's nearly not going to release you into the ministry uh, that he should, because you'll just let down the guys next to you. Worshippers are warriors. Um, and... You know, that brings up the fourth point. I think what you get uh, through worship is you get progress. You get progress uh, in, in life. Uh, if you let God be big, if you get all the junk out of your life so that God can really flow through you appropriately, if you get passion and courage, you put all of that together, and then finally you're going to get progress. You're going to get breakthrough. If you are stuck in life, uh, it, it may well be because you can't worship, because you really have not in invested in that. If worship turns you off, if worship is a turnoff to you, but you continue trying to minister fully, uh, you will hit the wall, and you will either quit or compromise, one of the two, but you will feel it. You will feel it, ultimately. Until we're good worshipers, I think we'll always be limited in how far we can go with God in this life. If we're weak worshipers, it means we're holding back from him somehow. There's just something that we're not going to give up if we're weak worshipers. Uh, we're being careful about costs. or We're trying to be natural and calculated about how we do things instead of supernatural and uncalculated in how we do things. Nobody walks on water by calculating. Nobody feeds 5,000 with a, f a few sandwiches by calculating. Uh, would it make a difference if you knew that worship was the one way 
that you have to get everything you need to change the world. It's the only avenue. Would that make a difference to how you saw worship? Uh, I have a word to Blue Water. I shared it a little bit several weeks ago, uh, but I'll just share it again. It explains why we are having a worship retreat for our all-church retreat this year, why we call it Worshiping the Living God. Uh, I believe that the Lord has spoken uh, to me, to a number of us, uh, to some of you, uh, about worship being the bottleneck at, at Blue Water Mission. I think we have done so many things so wonderfully well uh, at, at this church. I think we have, we have dug the ditches uh, for uh, the water of God's Spirit to flow. We are in the right position, and now God wants to flood he wants to flood, um, that worship is the bottleneck. I don't think that we are yet worshipers the way that we should be worshipers, you know. I can tell, frankly. I can tell every Sunday morning. Uh, we do uh, our big expressions of worship at the beginning. Uh, today at, uh, at 9.01 a.m., uh, there were approximately 40 people here. Uh, now there are about 200 people here. Uh, most of you did not come until 15 or 20 minutes into the service, which is to say you didn't show up until the worship was about done because you really, really like the sermons. Or you see no value in the worship, one of the two. I, I'm, hoping, I'm hoping for the former. Uh, but, you know, you're not, you're not really excited. You don't see much value in doing that. You know, you would not show up 20 minutes late uh, for work uh, every day, every week, but most of us show up uh, late to the service, and that's not me guilt-tripping you. That's just me kind of recognizing where we are. As a pastor, I need to take accounts of such things, and as a group, we just, we're not really into worship that much, you know, and so we push it all the time. We push envelopes, and there are a lot of great worshipers here, and we have all sorts of expressions of worship at the church uh, in order to try and, and shake something, but I think it's the bottleneck. I don't think we've broken through yet. Worship is the bottleneck for Blue Water Mission, uh, which means that worship is also the breakthrough point for Blue Water Mission. I think that once we get it, boom, that's it. Now, now God can be all that he is, and we can get everything that we want, right, which is to be full ministers of the kingdom to God, to be gloriously people of God in a world that desperately needs the people of God to be revealed, Right? I think, I think that's the word. Uh, I can say it this way. Uh, we've done a fine job being comfortable with God and his ways. Now we want to make God comfortable in our midst. And you make God comfortable through worship. You know what I mean? We've done a fine job creating a, co a comfortable church, I think. I hear from all sorts of authorities on the island. We have the most diverse church on Oahu. Yay. That's cool, which means that a lot of different kinds of people can be comfortable here because we are all awkward together. Can I hear an amen? Yeah, we're all awkward together. Uh, it's awesome. We travel well in the kingdom. Uh, we are a very adventurous people. I think we prioritize folks who tend to be uh, a little more marginalized because that's who Jesus said that we should uh, prioritize. We are comfortable being diverse and active and adventurous and trusting. We're comfortable with the ways of God. Now, is God comfortable being himself here? We're comfortable being ourselves here. Is God comfortable being himself here? And again, worship is what makes God comfortable to be God. Big, without disguise, just as he really is. Letting it all hang out. And when God lets it all hang out, it is quite something. 
it, it gets interesting really fast. Um, so the all-church retreat is a push in this direction. You know, it, it's a start. Uh, as I said last week, we aren't pursuing worship at the retreat. We are pursuing the presence of God at the retreat. And the way you do that, mostly, is through worship. And then as you become worshipers, it releases you to ministry in a way that we have not yet seen. His transcendent presence for changing lives, for gathering people in, that's when you get this thing called revival. When people start letting God be God and welcoming that and celebrating it and adoring it and putting passion into it, using different languages in wasteful degrees, that's what we're going to try to do. And I would encourage you to try to do that in your own individual lives so that when we come together, we're bringing momentum rather than inertia. We want to invest in worship. How many of you worship regularly in your private life, away from anyone else? Yeah? Huh. It's, uh, it's like lifeblood to me, you know. I really, really stuck, really stuck uh, in life uh, recently, just taking a lot of body blows in life, if you know what I mean. Um, I couldn't pray anymore. Um, so what I did is I just lay down <laughs> on my face uh, before God for like a few days. <laughs> uh, sometimes all you can do, I think, is worship. If you're really, really stuck or if you really, really want more, that's the thing. Let's pray. We humbly and willingly resolve together, Lord, to let you be you, to let God be God, to let the Holy Spirit be both holy and spiritual in our midst. Be God here today, Lord. Be comfortable in our midst. We pray, Father, that you uh, would, uh, would join us and, and let it all hang out. Uh, we welcome you, Lord, in Jesus' name. We welcome you into uh, our community. And in the name of Jesus, we welcome you into our lives. Come, Holy Spirit.
just leave you a couple minutes to make your own gestures of worship to the Lord. Welcome the big God into your life. Father, we pray uh, for your discipleship and worship that you would develop us into uh, the ways of the woman who sacrificed the alabaster jar to you. Um, we may have nothing quite so precious, uh, but you are precious to us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.